0: To the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: I don't know about you, but I love a good road trip. Anybody like a good road trip? i took wednesday off this week and we took a road trip we took a road trip up to denali national park they had it open up to mile number 30 and then we went for a 10 mile hike at the end and it was a beautiful day we saw a lot of wildlife we saw lynx. that was pretty funny actually we were standing on a bridge and angie kept screaming to me there's something wild coming wild animal wild animal and and uh Without my glasses, I didn't really see what the fuss was, but we saw quite a few bears moving around. But you know, whenever you go on a road trip, I am one of those guys who likes to check out all the signs. I like to read signs, especially signs on churches as you drive on down the road. Now, if you're a pastor and you know your theology, some of the signs that you see on church signs are absolutely boring. They're so boring. I mean, Christians should be ashamed. Some of the road signs, Ben. Can I get a? have horrible theology on them and you're like that's not even biblically true get that off your sign once in a while they're funny they're real funny here are some of the best ones church signs that had good intentions but could have been a little better thought out like the sign that said don't let worry kill you let the church help or dan and patty this has nothing to do with you (laughs) Sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) This next one, I know what they were going for, but I don't think it came out the best. I really don't. Dr. Scrubbs preaching, hear a good sermon while our pastor is away. (laughs) I'm not down with that. One church posted this, low self-esteem support group will be Thursday at 7 to 8.30 p.m. Please use the back door. Or the church that got their wording a little bit wrong when they said this, when they said, remember in prayer those who are sick of our church and our community. And then down in Mississippi, one sign read, church for sale must find new owner ASAP. Well, the book of Revelation does teach us that Jesus Christ is the author and owner of the church. He is the head of the church. It belongs to him. And as we come again this morning to Revelation chapter 1, you may see just an introduction to a letter. You may just see that, but I also see some beautiful descriptions of our Savior. And I want to share them with you this morning. We're setting ourselves up to go deeper into this book We start in verse 4 this morning where it says this, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, Revelation is just like any other New Testament book. Revelation starts with a greeting. Keep in mind that John was the last survivor of the apostles, and he needed nothing more than to just mention his name when writing to the churches of Asia. But don't pass over the humility of this man. This was an apostle of Jesus Christ. This was a man who walked with Jesus Christ. He talked with Jesus Christ. This was a man who leaned upon the chest of the Savior. This was a man that was chosen by God to record the book of Revelation. But yet this man of humility felt content to just identify himself back in verse 1 as a servant of God. And when we see in verse four that this was written to the churches, to the seven churches in Asia, we need to remember that this is not the Asia that we think of today in the news. This is the Roman province of Asia of the first century. John was writing the entire book of Revelation for the benefit of the local church. But ask yourself some questions, and I'm sorry if you're just a little bit looking for a more lighter sermon this morning. We're about to go kind of deep, okay? Ask yourself this morning why seven churches are listed. And if John was led by God to list seven churches, why does he specifically mention the churches that he does? There has to be a reason. This is the word of God. Because there were other churches close by in that day that could have been listed. And the answer is that John knew these churches. He knew these churches. Keep in mind, at the time of writing this, he was on the island of Patmos. This island was just off the coast of the mainland of the province of Asia. And from what we can tell is that John left Jerusalem in the late 60s of the first century when the Jews were rebelling against Rome. And from there, he headed off. He headed to Asia where he had a great, fantastic ministry and impact on the churches there. We have documents. We have documents from the first century that show this Roman province was where John spent the last years of his life. But when asking this question, why these seven churches? Why? I also think we need to remember that God is ultimately the author of this book. God is the author. And God knew that the strengths and the weaknesses of these particular seven churches were going to be seen again and again and again in many different churches as history unfolded. The words recorded to these specific churches of the first century would be used for the edification of the saints as the church continued from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and to the next. God chose these seven churches because he wanted Christians, you and I, all throughout the age, the church age, to learn these lessons. So here we go. Let's think of this statement here. Grace to you and peace from him. Now, we would think nothing of this statement if this was just another one of the New Testament epistles, if this was any other book in the New Testament. But this book is, for the most part, all about the judgment of God upon the lost. But yet God begins the message of this book with the words grace and peace for those who are in Jesus Christ. This book is an amazing book. It deals with bloodshed. It deals with war. It speaks of carnage and conflict, persecutions like nothing that this world has ever seen. This book speaks of war in heaven and on earth. But yet God begins this book with the message of peace. And the reason, the very reason that we see this message of grace and peace is because this describes the inner life of the person reconciled to God, despite all the conditions of this world that surround us. Keep in mind what we said in our last study during this time within the Roman Empire. There was severe, severe persecution of the saints. For the first time, this persecution against Christians was taking place all at once, all throughout the Roman Empire. And the message from John was that the churches should rest in the grace and peace of God in difficult times. I hope you hear that message because I believe that if John was standing here today, he would tell us the exact same message difficult things are happening in our time in our day but we are to continue as Christians to rest in the grace and peace of our God look again at the rest of verse 4 and 5 I believe that what we have here if you work this through is a beautiful description in these two verses of the triune God verse 5 is the easy part Verse 5 is the easy part to understand, and here's where we're going to go a little deeper to understand what's going on. Verse 5 is an obvious reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, but first let's take a look at this statement in verse 4, where it says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now this would be a reference to God the Father. And the reason that we come to this conclusion is because verse 5 is a reference to Christ. And we're going to see in a minute that the seven spirits is a reference to God the Spirit. And so by process of elimination we can do the math, this would be a reference to God the Father. And notice the idea that God the Father is outside of time. He's always existed. He's always been God has always existed. And in this case, the idea of the wording who is to come is not really so much a reference to God coming again, but it's more about the idea that God, the father will always be, God will always exist. God will always be. That's where you take your confidence in. Now, when we come to this phrase and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, I want you to understand that there's two main schools of thought out there about this. One school of thought is that this is a reference to angels. The other school of thought is that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you guys how we can work through this, how we all can understand the book of Revelation. So on the side where people say that this is about angels, it's often said that this seems to refer to seven created beings who are before the throne of God. Therefore, they say, why would the spirit of God be in a position of submission to God? But if we look at this phrase, there's nothing that would indicate that the seven spirits are worshiping God the Father. And there is one main reason in the wording of verse 4 that makes me believe that this cannot be a simple reference to angels. Back up again a little bit in the verse and just read it with me again. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Grace and peace would not come through the angels, but grace and peace would absolutely come through the Holy Spirit of God. Do you see that? Angels are not the source of God's grace. Angels are not the source of God's peace. And it would be hard for me to imagine that in this message of grace and peace to the churches, there would be angels on the same footing as that of God the Father and God the Son. So, the very next question that we have to ask is this If the seven spirits who are before his throne, if this is a reference to the Spirit of God, then why, why the number seven? Why is the Spirit of God referred to this way? And I think the best explanation is found over in Zechariah chapter 4. You need to understand Zechariah if you're going to understand Revelation chapter 1. Verses 2 and 10 of Zechariah 4 both speak of seven lamps that are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the earth. And there are parallels between the passage in Zechariah 4 and the wording in Revelation especially the latter part of Revelation 5, 6, which is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And it says this, it says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And Zechariah 4 also teaches that the work of the Lord would be accomplished. How? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So here's the bottom line. Here's what I'm getting at Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, the Holy Spirit is clearly represented as a lampstand with seven lamps, also known as a menorah. And if you skip ahead to Revelation 4, the second half of verse 5 records this. It says seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So just follow the line of thinking both in Zechariah 4 and in Revelation 4. They speak of seven lamps burning. Zechariah 4 tells us that the seven lamps is a reference to the spirit of God. And we just read in Revelation four that the seven lamps represent the seven spirits of God. So put this together in your understanding. Revelation one, Revelation four, Zechariah four, they all teach us that the seven lamps and the seven spirits of God both represent the Holy Spirit. And this number seven, just in case you're misunderstanding what's happening here, the number seven does not mean that we have seven spirits that make up the Holy Spirit. No, may it never be. That's not what it's teaching. Seven conveys the idea of perfection and completeness. It refers to the complete ministry of the Spirit of God. The seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God, the Holy Spirit of God. Hear me when I say this, the Holy Spirit of God gives perfect illumination and insight concerning all that takes place in God's creation by this perfect wisdom that comes from the spirit of God. God rules the universe. Be encouraged by that Christian, because it means that God is at work in your life with perfect insight, grace and peace from God, the father, grace and peace from the spirit of God in verse four. Now, verse five is a little bit easier to understand. Take a look at it again. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is three descriptions given about Christ. The first is that he is the faithful witness, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ came to earth as a witness for God. And what would be the best witness Jesus Christ. Well, I think the best display of the witness of Christ on earth is obviously the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And this display of love demonstrated to the world not only who Christ is, but what he came to do. Now the word for witness is where we get our word martyr. Jesus Christ was faithful unto death. The second description here of Christ is that he was the firstborn from the dead. This is an obvious reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of his faithful witness, the Savior suffered at the hands of men, but he was vindicated in the resurrection. And the simple point here is that the resurrection is the pattern for what God will do for the redeemed, for the born again believers in Jesus Christ. And notice the wording of this phrase, "firstborn from the dead or out of the dead. And the idea is that of all of all those who died, Christ is the first to be raised out of it. Now, if you in your mind, you are thinking of the different people that Christ himself raised from the dead in his ministry. Remember, he restored these people people to life, but only life on earth, because they still face death once again. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. It's a little bit like the father and son driving past a cemetery together, and as they drove past a large pile of dirt from a grave that had been just dug out, the little five-year-old pointed and said to his dad, he said, look dad, one escaped, one got out. That's what we should think of. That's what we should think of every time we go past a graveyard. Remind yourself of the one that got out, because Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And that's the very reason that we can have hope. That's the reason we can have hope, because his resurrection gives us, in Christ, that same hope, that same promise of escaping death, eternal separation from God the words of Christ from John 14, 19, where Christ had said this, because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. Amen. We have this hope because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, this third statement about Christ of verse five is that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The threefold description of Jesus Christ in revelation echoes the words of Psalm 89. Now, Psalm 89 speaks of the faithful witness. And then verse 27 of that Psalm reads like this. It should remind you of revelation. It says, also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Certainly Jesus Christ is ruler over the kings of the earth right now, but this will be one day demonstrated even more when the King of kings and the Lord of lords establishes his kingdom once and for all on earth. Take another look at the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. says to him who loved us. Can you see John just breaking out in a word of praise to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John had just written about the triune God and the glorious work of Jesus Christ through the death and resurrection. And now John just opens up and gives words of praise to the great work of Christ in our lives. These words should be the cry of the heart for the redeemed of every age because we serve a Savior who has never stopped loving us. And the very first evidence of this love from John is that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is regeneration. This is the cleansing from sins. The cost, the very cost for Jesus Christ to redeem us, the cost for Christ to cleanse us was his blood. It cost him deeply. In order for us to be reconciled to a holy God, the perfect mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, had to lay down his life for us. And with the start of verse 6, most of your translations read just as the New King James does and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father but there should be a footnote in your Bible somewhere that the word kings would be better translated a kingdom this should read as it does here to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Now it is at this very point that I think we need to keep in mind the background of the book of Revelation. This was written when Christians all throughout the Roman Empire were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I think there's a very good possibility that this was intended to be a reminder to the first century Christians that even though they were the despised people of the Roman Empire in Christ, they were a people with a great future and a great hope resting in Christ telling us as Christians that the kingdoms that we have now, they should not be our constant focus because we should look forward to the coming kingdom of Christ. And the statement that we are priests to his God and Father demonstrates that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have access to God. You have access to God. You don't have to go through me or any other man. Praise God. We serve God as priests. This is another one of these beautiful passages from scripture, which upholds the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. And it's an important doctrine. And Peter tells us about this speaking to the church when he says in first Peter chapter two, verse nine, what does he say? He says, but you He's talking to Christians. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the sacrifice of Christ has set us apart in him to serve as royal priests to God. But notice the careful warning in Revelation that Christ has made us priests to his God. What is this saying? His God and Father. Isn't that peculiar? It is peculiar because it refers to something important. It's referring to the two-sided nature of Christ. Fall in love with the beautiful details of the word of God. According to the human nature of Christ, according to the humanity of Christ, God is his God but according to his deity, according to his nature as God, God is his father. And to the Lord Jesus Christ, John testifies, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory belongs to Jesus Christ forever and ever in dominion, meaning power or strength. It belongs to Christ. And John testifies, amen, or literally so be it. Meaning that John John, as an apostle, is expressing his heartfelt conviction and agreement of these words of praise about the Savior. And then take a look at verses seven and eight, where it says, behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Maybe you heard about the Christian woman who went to the pet store and she saw a beautiful parrot, a beautiful parrot that she wanted to buy. And so she made an offer to buy this parrot, but the owner of the store hesitated. She didn't want to sell it to the Christian woman because the parrot used to belong to a sailor and it liked to cuss, it liked to swear. So the woman insisted and bought the parrot and she took that parrot home and she told the parrot that if it swore she would place it in the freezer for 10 minutes to break him of the habit. Well, sure enough, that parrot didn't know any better, and he started cursing, and he started swearing. True to her word, this woman placed the parrot in the freezer for 10 minutes, and when she took the bird from the freezer, the parrot just said to this. He said to her, Please, lady, would you just tell me one thing? What did that turkey do? (laughs) I've been waiting to sneak that into a sermon for a month. (laughs) I don't even know how well it fits in the message, but I've been waiting. Here's my connection. Here's my segue. See if it works for you. All right. Can I just say that the day is coming when the tribes of the earth will find out exactly what they did. Everything up until verses seven and eight has been an introduction into this book. But with verse 7, we start getting at the real purpose of the words of Revelation. And as we try to understand these two verses, remember that in verse 7, it is John that is speaking. And in verse 8, who is it? It's God. So don't miss the importance of these verses. Verse 7 teaches us the theme of the entire book, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now this should bring to mind a lot of text from from the Bible. It should bring to mind at least two different passages. Daniel 7:13 records, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the second passage is Zechariah again. This time Zechariah 12:10 where it says, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, what I find amazing, what I absolutely find amazing in this section of the word of God is that roughly 65 years, approximately 65 years before this passage, the events of Mark 13 and Matthew 24 took place. So let's review. Listen to verses three and four from the book of Mark where it says, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, who John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will all these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? You see, right before this, you guys remember from our study of the Olivet Discourse right before this, the disciples had heard Christ speaking about the future and they wanted to know more. John was there. John was one of the four asking to know more. John had heard Christ speak about this roughly 65 years before the book of Revelation was even written. And it was during this same time that the teaching that Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 24 was given, where it said, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, John was introduced to this teaching 65 years before this, but he was about to find out so much more. The entire theme of the book of Revelation is wrapped up in verse 7, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And John grabs our attention with that word where he says, behold, look for yourself. Take notice, Christians. He says in the first part of verse 7, behold, he's coming with the clouds. This takes us back, back to Daniel 7, where the subject matter is clearly the return of Jesus Christ to establish his literal kingdom on earth. This is the veil being pulled back to reveal the living Christ at the very moment of his return. In Acts chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus was taken up from the Mount of Olives, how did he go up? He went up in a cloud and when he returns, the clouds will part to reveal the once rejected, but now glorified Christ. Verse seven is speaking of the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. The rest of verse seven is pulling from another text that we mentioned. It's pulling from Zechariah 12, which says every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now, the context, if you look at Zechariah 12 sometime, the context is the Lord restoring Jerusalem and the tribes of Israel turning to the Lord. But here we have these statements that every eye, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. See, the people that survived the tribulation, they will all see the Christ, even those who pierced him, meaning even the Hebrew people, because the first time he came, they crucified their Savior Remember in Matthew 27, Pilate was trying to set Jesus free and verse 24 of that chapter records when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And remember how the Jewish people responded words that will haunt them. Verse 25 of Matthew records, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Think of that statement. His blood be on us and all our children. John writes of the time when the nation will be confronted by the one they pierced. And in chapter 19 of the gospel of John, the apostle John said that he witnessed the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the wording that he used there was the exact same wording that they pierced him. Now, something I think we need to keep in mind before we wrap up is that the scriptures that refer to the rapture of the church in the New Testament Passages such as John 14, 1 through 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. In those passages, they give no indication at all that anyone other than the raptured saints in the church will see the Savior. They give no indication of that at all. This is why we know this is speaking of something different in Revelation. This is why we know that this is speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ, because the people of the earth will look up and see him. Notice the wording in verse 7, every eye will see him. Christ will descend out of the sky at the end of the tribulation to destroy his enemies. All the people of the earth will be able to witness the return of Christ. This is the climax of the entire book, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And notice the next statement in verse seven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now, when we look at Zechariah 12, it's clearly speaking of the remnant of Israel mourning at the second coming of Christ. But here, here, I want you to notice that the text clearly states the tribes of the earth, doesn't it? It says the tribes of the earth. This would be the sinful men and women of the world in despair over the judgment of Christ at his return, because the judgments in the book of Revelation, they're going to affect the whole world. Certainly Israel is the primary focus. It is the 70th week of Daniel for Israel, but the impact is going to be global. These are the tribes of the earth. And both Jews and Gentiles brought to faith during the tribulation will mourn at his return for how they had once lived and for how they had treated the Christ. And the lost are going to mourn because all of their arrogant denials of the sovereign creator will be confirmed and confronted by the return of Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ looks forward to the day when we are reunited with our Savior at the rapture. But for the men and women of the world who continue to rebel against him, the return of Christ at his second coming, it's going to be a time of despair as they realize that their judgment has come for those who have given their allegiance to the satanic forces of this world. The revelation of Jesus Christ will mean all hope is gone, judgment is coming, And the result will be mourning all around the globe. And notice how John ends verse seven. He says, even so, amen. Now we said just a few minutes ago that amen literally means so be it. And if you add to it the words, even so, it's a way of testifying that what has just been prophesied is certain. It will absolutely come to pass. Let's read our last verse again. Verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If you're wondering to yourself why God is now speaking, the point is to remind us that the words of this book are the very words of God himself. And what we need to recognize is that God is testifying that just as he does not change, his word will not change. Just as you can count on the Lord, you can count on the truth that these things will come to pass. The Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, written to Greek-speaking churches. The Christians understood this was a reference to the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The expression stands for totality, that God has given us his message to mankind through Jesus Christ and through his written word. God is eternal. He is before time. He is outside of time. Almighty, it speaks of the sovereignty of God. It conveys the idea of the authority of the creator himself. And God's declaration ends with a note of authority that this all powerful God, this sovereign God will one day carry out what his servant John has predicted will come in the future judgment of man. In March of 1980, a very radical thing took place in the state of Washington, something that hadn't taken place in at least 123 years. It started when an earthquake of about 4.2 on the Richter scale. We wouldn't think much of that, would we, of 4.2? But an earthquake happened near Mount St. Helens. Forest rangers were notified of possible dangers that could happen, including the possibility of an eruption of Mount St. Helens. And so scientists came in, volcano scientists came, and they flew in from all over the world to assess and look at the explosive potential of the mountain. And they gave a terrifying report of impending destruction that would come. They warned all the residents to evacuate. And maybe you've heard this before, but living on that mountain was this man, a man named Harry. Harry had lived there for a long time with his 16 cats. I'm not sure why anyone would have 16 cats, but I digress. Harry bragged, listen to Harry's words. He said, nobody knows more about this mountain than Harry, and it don't dare blow up on him. And when sheriff's deputies tried to persuade Harry to leave, he responded by saying, I'm having a heck of a time living my life alone. I'm king of all I survey and I've got plenty of whiskey. I've got enough food for 15 years. I'm sitting high on the hog. I'm not going anywhere. But then it happened. May 18th of 1980, when it exploded, huge rocks, and when I say huge rocks, I mean huge rocks, were sent flying, landing miles and miles away. Huge trees were leveled, and 57 people were killed, including Harry and his whiskey. 250 homes. 47 bridges, and 185 miles of highway were destroyed. The warnings were over. There was no more time to run. The predictions of the end had come. And for those left unprepared, it was much, much too late. Jesus is coming again. I believe that with all my heart. If I didn't, I wouldn't even be here this morning. Jesus is coming again. I've seen that message everywhere. I've seen it, the message of his return. I've seen it on signs. I've seen it on billboards. I've seen it on graffiti. Of all places, graffiti, I've seen it. Books, heard it in sermons. I've watched videos about it on YouTube. But I still don't think that most of the world believes he's coming back. And I wonder this morning if you do. When you're done at the end of the day, I really wonder if you believe it. And if you live like it you see the second coming of christ is the particular doctrine that makes christianity different if you study history it tells you to look back if you study science it tells you to look around and if you study philosophy it tells you to look within but the christian faith is different because it says look up for our king is coming believe it trust it heed the warnings and then live every day like you believe it for our coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.